This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. 2020 saw changes at the Hawaii Office of Elections, which conducted its first election entirely by mail. Now another innovations on the docket, automatic voter registration. Sandy Ma of Common Cause spoke to the conversation's Savannah Harriman-Pote about what automatic voter registration actually means. A lot of people think automatic voter registration is everybody gets registered to vote automatically. That's not exactly what it is, despite its title. What it means is that when you interact with Department of Motor Vehicles in Hawaii, you are automatically registered to vote unless you check a box saying you do not want to be registered to vote. If you have currently a state ID or currently a driver's license, you will not be automatically registered to vote unless you go into the Department of Motor Vehicles and have an interaction. Under the federal motor voter law, you have the option to register to vote, but you have to fill out a piece of paper, and that physical piece of paper is then physically taken down to the elections offices and re-keyed in. So it's another data entry step. And when that data entry step happens, there could be errors, because people make errors, we're all human, um, in data entry. And so with automatic voter registration, when you are at the DMV and you're updating your information or getting new driver's license or state ID, and you do not uh, opt out of registering to vote, that information is automatically transferred to the elections offices to register you to vote. All right, Sandy, I appreciate you walking me through all those steps. It is something that is so simple, and yet because it's something we're not used to, (laughs) I'm sure you have to explain it in these very step-by-step terms for people who are getting used to the idea. I'm happy to talk about it. And, you know, people often ask, but we have motor voter, but we do. Um, It's under federal law, and it is a separate piece of paper, and that piece of paper is carried down to another agency to be re-keyed in, and that's where we have some errors happen. And, you know, with vote by mail that's currently in place in the state of Hawaii, we want our ballots to be sent everyone's correct address you know that's election security that ballots are sent to where we are and it also saves money because we don't want um, ballots to be mailed to the wrong place and also it eliminates duplicate services because if it's already keyed in in one place um, at the DMV uh, why key it in in a second place Yes, I spoke with Rosemary Casey, who has worked as a voting official getting people registered here in Honolulu, and she made that point, um, that AVR could not only streamline the registration process for voters, but also lift some of the burden of this process from state poll workers. I started working in the election process at the polls in 2012. In 2018, I had to assist with people who had problems with their registration. The line for people with problems with their registration was maybe 20 people for a period of time. You know, we just kept moving people through. There were a couple of us who were doing it, but, you know, it required a a call to, to Election Central to check names and addresses and, you know, other information, and the day was long. So, I think having worked the process, having read the automatic voter registration information, it just seems like a no-brainer, really, to me, and it would make it so much easier. Yes, it is streamlining it for the voter and also streamline it for the election workers and our elections administrators. You mentioned a little bit about the legislation that is currently working its way through the Hawaii legislature. I know of one bill in the Senate, SB 1. 5-9-SD-1. Correct. Can you just speak to the status of that bill? Yes. So that bill, um, Senate Bill 159, is um, sponsored by uh, several senators. That is the um, only automatic voter registration bill that is still uh, moving at the state legislature. And it uh, provides for Um, address confidentiality for certain people, such as if you are a domestic violence victim, you don't want your information broadcast. 
Uh, so it provides for domestic violence confidentiality. It provides for um, if you are not someone with U.S. citizenship, your information from the DMV will not be transmitted to the elections offices. So it has a lot of safeguards in there to protect people and to make sure that non-citizens are not inadvertently registered to vote. AVR, I know, is not a new concept. Many have been resistant to it in the past for a lot of the same concerns that we've heard about mail-in ballots that we heard throughout 2020 in that electoral season. Do you think that now that we're on the other side of that process and it resulted in record turnout across the state, people might be more ready to accept automatic voter registration? I certainly hope so. I certainly hope people in Hawaii are more open to AVR, automatic voter registration. There are over 20 states in the District of Columbia who have adopted automatic voter registration. Um, Given that we have already adopted vote by mail, automatic voter registration can only strengthen vote by mail. It will certainly help um, our voter registration database. It will certainly make sure that um, our ballots are going to the correct and current addresses because it will update our um, our voter registration addresses as people go interact with the DMV, uh, go update their driver's license and state IDs, they will update their addresses. And when they do not opt out of registering to vote, their addresses will be updated at the voter registration rolls and the Office of Elections. So I'm hoping that people understand the benefits of automatic voter registration working hand-in-hand with our vote-by-mail process. There are just so many benefits Mm -hmm. um, with with the two processes working together. I do have one clarifying question based upon what you said. If this bill passes and automatic voter registration is implemented across the state's and I go to renew my license, and I don't know, I'm in a mood. (laughs) I'm a little disillusioned that day. I elect to opt out of the automatic voter registration system. There will still be processes in place if I later want to participate? Oh, yes. You could always register to vote. We have paper registration forms that you could fill out. We'll have online voter registration. You can also uh, go in person and have same-day voter registration. You could always register to vote. That was Sandy Ma, the executive director of Common Cause. The Senate bill that would institute automatic voter registration crossed over to the House yesterday. If it passes there and is signed by the governor, Hawaii would join 20 other states that already have what some call AVR. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, celebrating 60 years of serving Hawaii businesses and homeowners with a range of air conditioning and refrigeration products, supplies, and tools. CostcoHawaii.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Dr. Devin Price, the author of Laziness Does Not Exist. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about reclaiming our lives from overload, burnout, and the laziness lie. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Your background quiz is next. Today 
Today, we're delving into the garden in search of a prickly endemic plant that's part of the poppy family. However, unlike the opium poppy, this plant doesn't produce morphine or codeine. Rather, it produces alkaloids that irritate the stomach and bowels if ingested. Despite its toxic nature, early Hawaiians were known to use the plant for medicinal purposes. The sap and the seed's narcotic qualities were used to treat toothache pain, ulcers, and nerve pain. The attractive plant has a rosette growth habit, but be warned, it is very pokey. The stems are usually covered with prickles. The flower buds have prickles, and even the seed pods have prickles. White blooms can be found on mature plants, and they wither in the day. Commonly referred to as the Hawaiian poppy or the beach poppy. For today's quiz, we want to know the Hawaiian name of this prickly herb that can be found growing wild in dry leeward parts of the state. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to strengthening communities by supporting affordable housing with support for nonprofits such as Honolulu Habitat for Humanity. Learn more at nareethawaii.com. You know, many people are reflecting on the past year and the impact of COVID-19 on our lives. In the last time I saw Dr. Scott Miskovich of Premier Medical Group in person was at a drive-through testing event at Kakaako Waterfront Park. At the time, he had about 150 employees. Now he says he is a thousand across the country as he's been tapped by major athletic and corporate organizations to run their testing programs. We caught up with him last week in North Carolina at a women's basketball championship game before he traveled to Nashville for the men's championships, which start today. About a year ago, we set up our first drive-through testing over in Kaneohe, and I was um, really scratching my head back then when I had representatives from Walgreens, and I was called by Apple and Google about their large facilities, and it was like, what are you doing? What's going on? And... I now realize with some of the time I spend on CNN, because I've been honored to be on CNN quite a few times, that they're crediting us to be first drive-through testing in the United States. And I guess the highlight I want to say to everyone is that, you know, we really took on testing and we were the most progressive group, but I didn't invent it. All you had to do is turn across to our Pacific neighbors and look especially over between Singapore, Taiwan, and then South Korea. South Korea was the leader, and they you know, were having problems with COVID really spreading through their large cities and other areas before us. But they had developed models that worked, and the models that worked in the countries that were successful were testing. And it was testing followed by isolation and quarantine and then contact tracing and their models where you do it fast you do it immediately and they had a little advantage with having somewhat of authoritarian governments where they could force people to do it but if you did do it and complied that's how you took care of covid fast forward look where we are now that model hasn't changed we need to test and we need to follow through with contact tracing and we are in a very enviable position because our cases are low, our death rate is low comparatively to the rest of the country? Um, I brag about it. As you know, I'm talking to you from the mainland now in South Carolina at the SEC Women's Basketball Championships, and people kind of know I'm from Hawaii. I, you know, I don't hide the fact I'm very proud of my home. And I get that question a lot, like, how can Hawaii just be so far above everyone? And I think there's a couple of things we have to look at. Number one is I do think our safe travel program has worked enough that the pre-arrival testing has screened out a lot of positive individuals. So that is something we have to give credit for. 
The second issue is the people of Hawaii. They get credit because when you look at our mask rates and the compliance rates are, what, in the 90s mostly, I know Kauai was a little lower. Uh, I'm walking, I'm and being involved with the SEC since August. I mean, if you see 50% of people wearing masks or thinking about social distancing, you're lucky. So where I have been across the country, and it's not only in the South, when I go to Hawaii, it's a drastic comparison of how compliant the people are with what are the best things. And number one, I've said this before, Catherine, it's wearing masks, number one. And then that's followed by social distancing. And then, you know, the hand washing is probably, in my mind, a distant third. But um, people of Hawaii deserve a lot of credit. And then the efforts of, of all the medical community coming together and all the testing that we're doing now and now the cooperation and coordination, that's why we're successful right now. Does it make you nervous, though, as you see that there are many states that are already dropping the mask mandates? Oh, my God. That has been a huge discussion. And that is where I'm seeing it firsthand. I am watching and going to different areas, and you're watching these people now feeling like, oh, I don't need a mask. Oh, COVID, it's done. Many of them didn't really necessarily believe it in the first place. And, you know, you'll walk by places with restaurants or you'll walk by places with bars. And I just look in there and, you know, I'm with other people that are all medically trained COVID individuals. And and everybody just shakes their head and goes, how many cases do you think are going to come out of that bar tonight Um, or that restaurant or just the group of people standing there? It's very concerning because it just lowers the public's view of the importance of you know, the most important thing of wearing a mask or, or even that COVID's going away because a lot of people just see the, the trending going down and they think, oh, it's going away. Wrong answer. We cannot let our guard down. And we are seeing the rollout of the vaccines across the country. There are businesses across the board that are looking forward to, you know, the relaxation of the restrictions. And you're involved, you know, in the athletic arena now. Talk about that. I've been the medical director, and I've been running all the COVID testing for the SEC Southeastern Conference, which is Alabama, Auburn, Mississippi, Mississippi State, Florida, Texas A&M. So it's always from Texas to uh, Florida, up as high as Kentucky, Missouri, Arkansas, and 14 universities. Plus, we do other university testing, and it's been a great experience. I give a lot of credit to the other 14 members of the Medical Advisory Committee and I've been here with the leadership, the commissioner and the chief operating officer. And the reason the SEC has been the most successful sports organization in the country is because they let the medical advisory group run all the policy. They didn't make business decisions. They turned to the medical group and said, tell us what the best policy is to keep the student athletes safe. And it was extraordinary the detail that we went down to and how there was no questions asked. If a person was positive, it didn't matter if they were the star quarterback or where they were, they, you know, were separated. They were all treated the same. And I had the, I guess, unenviable task of uh, having the final signature as the director. I was the independent signature to pull people out of games or allow people to return to games. And we just kept it for the safety of the student athlete. And I think why I'm telling the more detail is, that's what America needs to do. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your political affiliation is. It doesn't matter what your race is or what your income is. Everybody deserves to be treated the same with the same respect and with the same concern for their safety and health and their family. It's been a great adventure as, as I've been here. Well, okay, so, so basically you're underscoring best practices, and you're dealing with, let's see, the basketball championships right now. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm at the Women's Basketball Championships for the SEC in Greenville, South Carolina. Then I move up to Nashville for the Men's SEC Championship, and then we'll see how many teams make it to March Madness. And, you know, we continue to test our teams throughout. But it's really important to know every sport is functioning now for the SEC. I mean, we're even testing equestrian. I know people know I love animals. I wanted to test the horses, but they wouldn't let me. But basically, um, yeah, all the sports are functioning Everybody's going. They're into uh, winter football right now. And since I have 
all of the testing information and all the data, I can tell you no significant problem with any student athlete in the entire conference at any level. Because early on, everybody questioned the SEC and those questioning professional sports or, or questioning college sports, like, well, why should we let it happen? And a couple things I do want to say and why I'm so honored to be involved since I'm a lifelong you know, person that's been involved in athletics is that I believe that these kids started when they were so young and to be up at a division one at the highest level to pull that away from them and to, to to have them not be able to participate would just been so awful that to have them now be able to fulfill what their lifelong you know practice and dreams were and do it safely was so essential and i also believed it a lot america to have some hope that there was some normalcy to see something on the tv on saturday or thursday night or sunday and as I'm watching the, the basketball championships here, you know, and you see the athletes participating, I really feel proud of all that. You know, I have about 150 staff doing the testing and swabbing. And now we have almost 1,000 employees for Premier across the country and all the other venues that we're testing. And I just, you know, I'm just, they're, they're what make it happen. You know, these people that are on the front lines involved in the testing and all the leadership I have, that's what makes this happen. So you're attending the the games right now, and uh, there's no audience. Um, you know, probably in a fourteen thousand seat arena, there's probably about eight hundred, and they're very spread out. And I think that there, you know, there was just a few tickets for family, and then they have to go out. And you want to talk about a safe seating? I mean, if you take a big section, and there's about eight people in each big section in the arena, I feel fairly confident that that's a safe seating arrangement. Okay, so you've got the uh, the basketball. Are you involved in the football testing? Well, oh, yeah, we did the entire season, right down to testing the, the national championship, Alabama. And uh, and right now, you know, we have every sport. We have baseball, uh, track and field. We just did the track and field championship swimming. And, um, and actually, Catherine, I do want to add this. This is hot off the press. We're in the final phases, and boy, of something that's just a dream for me, we are going to be the, the group that's going to be doing the U.S. Olympics for all our U.S. Olympic uh, trials throughout the country. So later this month, it looks like we'll be testing the U.S. Olympics the whole ways up through Eugene, um, Oregon, and, the, and the, the championships that determine who goes to Tokyo. And just minutes ago, I just got off with the team from the U.S. Paralympics. We'll probably be doing their Paralympics up in um, Minneapolis. So that's something that, you know, another dream to be helping these athletes get to compete in, um, in the Olympics. So as, as we roll out the vaccines and a lot of these athletes get vaccinated um, and we go back to some sense of normalcy where they have larger crowds, I mean, so this testing will continue? Oh my gosh, boy, you are you're right on the spot of talk about things I'm talking about down here on this trip. Yesterday, the University of Alabama and the University of Kentucky announced that in September that they wanted to have 100,000 people in Alabama and 80,000 people in Kentucky, and they were going to open up full seating. I'm meeting with some of my medical advisory members that are here traveling with their teams, and we're all just putting our hands on our forehead, and people are stopping us and asking. The real answer is no one knows. So mm-hmm. to, to ask someone who's intimately involved in where COVID is in the country and the world, what will things look like? Even with the vaccine in September, no one knows. That was Scott Miskovich of the Premier Medical Group reflecting on the past year. Dr. Miskovich says he's working pro bono with the ILH here in the islands on how best to bring sports back safely for our young Hawaii athletes with COVID testing and social distancing.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Dr. David Hiranaka on Hawaii Island, providing maxillofacial, facial plastic, and reconstructive surgery, specializing in facial aesthetic surgery, online at a-new-face.com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Mars Cafe, we'll talk to the team on Molokai that connects students with kupuna to teach digital literacy. We'll learn how the Health Occupation Student Association also gets students to learn about telehealth and potential careers in healthcare. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from the Kahala Hotel and Resort on Oahu, celebrating nearly six decades of hospitality, committed to the community with its Kahala Initiative for Sustainability, Culture, and the Arts, kahalaresort.com. Hawaii School Superintendent is stepping down this summer. You probably heard that is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat uh, Education reporter Suwon Lee is on the line today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So this announcement came down yesterday. Were you surprised? Um, I certainly was surprised, and I think everybody else was as well. (laughs) Um, Yeah, the Department of Education emailed a statement out to the media um, shortly after 2 p.m. and said that the superintendent herself would be available for a press call, you know, no more than 40 minutes later. So this all kind of came down very quickly. And, of course, we know that the surrounding context of this was that her uh, contract renewal was up for discussion, was going to be up for discussion before the Board of Education um, next week. So she kind of got a, got ahead of that um, discussion and preemptively announced her um, decision to step down in July. And she's been under fire by the Hawaii State Teachers Association, the teachers union. Right. And I think it's important to point out that it's really in the last year, right, during the pandemic that sort of these forces kind of all collided, um, that the the tensions between her and the teachers union, and as we saw in recent weeks with even some principals, have really started coming to the surface because of frustrations over what some people have criticized as a lack of a proper communication or leadership or clarity when it comes to reopening schools. Um, I think there's been a lot of frustration just um, felt by teachers and school administrators about what the state's overall plan is when it comes to bringing kids back and staff back in a safe way during the pandemic. And, you know, we've been doing lots of stories here on HPR about, you know, the private schools, and they've had students back, I think, many or some of them since September. Uh, And, you know, they're managing it. But the DOE, you know, it's a statewide system. It's way bigger. And uh, things are a little more complicated. Absolutely. And I think it's it's hard to really compare the public school system with the private schools here. Um, each private school is, is sort of uh, doing its own operation and bringing kids back in a protocol in which they feel is safe and that works. And while some have bigger budgets than others, these private schools, many, or if not most, have brought kids back for in-person instruction and done it successfully, as we have seen, uh, due to lack of known outbreaks on school campuses. So So the Hawaii Department of Education, on the other hand, is a massive bureaucratic system. And we're talking 257 schools serving 160,000 kids. So each campus really is kind of left to do its own plan. Um, And many people have felt there's been a lack of guidance or direction from the overarching DOE central administration. And and we have talked to some principals over uh, on Windward Oahu who have had the younger kids back in person. Uh, so there are, are some uh, uh, complexes and districts that uh, have managed to work it in. But uh, I guess what surprised me, too, was that uh, the the union that represents the principals also uh, was critical of uh, Superintendent Kishimoto. That's right. We've seen some principal pushback um, come out in recent days. The Hawaii Government Employees Association union uh, section that represents principals um, um, had come out in written testimony and testified verbally last week at the last Board of Ed meeting when um, 
public testimony was on the agenda um, before the board actually discussed this issue, which they deferred. Um, but anyhow, they came out and talked about their opposition to her reappointment, and they submitted a letter. And a principal survey was done by this outside firm called Ward Research a couple weeks ago, in which about sixty percent about of about a hundred and sixty principals surveyed expressed their um, disgruntlement or displeasure with the way things were handled by the superintendent and DOE leadership during this time of the pandemic. So we had seen signs that they they were dissatisfied. And uh, I know that uh, now they've got to do a search and hopefully uh, as we have a few more months before she steps down that they can get that going and we can have a new superintendent in place. That's correct. Kishimoto said that she, her, her focus right now remains on the fourth quarter, reopening schools, on what summer will look like, and sort of stay, uh, setting the groundwork for next school year. So she remains, she says she remains focused on finishing out the job. Okay. And then I know you've been busy. You also have another story uh, online about the uh, teachers that DOE has hired from the Philippines to help with the shortage. Uh, and some of those teachers are on the line. That's correct. Uh, yeah, that that story is out today, and it, it's it's sort of a um, an exploration of what the what the current school year looks like for three teachers hired from the Philippines who are at Lanai Elementary this year. I went over there and spoke with them and interviewed them and observed their classes and walked around the campus. So it's a really interesting kind of um, glimpse into what that's like for them as the DOE uh, struggles or or tries to um, you know fill these teacher shortages in yeah. the state. All right. Well, thanks so much, Suvan. <laughs> thanks for having me on. That was reporter Suvan Lee with today's Reality Check. Uh, head to civilbeat.org to read her stories. A sign of the times. So many businesses are auctioning off their goods as they shut down for good or downsize. The Plaza Club, Alan Wong's just a few of the well-known eateries, but there are bigger fish too. Love's Bakery with a presence across the state. And now the Honolulu Sign Company is downsizing after eight decades in one location. Oahu Auctions is handling the closure of the Kalihi Warehouse. We talked to auction owner Alicia Brandt about the business snapshot as companies shut down for good or pare down as they try and stay in business. It's really a treasure hunt of printed signs and relics from yesteryear, you know, from bygone era political campaign posters and decals and even school signs that you, you saw, you know, through the various schools on the island. Um, and Hawaii themed prints and other memorabilia that have been just, um, I guess, amassed over 80 years of production that's just been sitting in the um, Honolulu Sign Company's warehouse and uh, showroom and just kind of, you know, packed up on along the wall, basically. I happen to see, too, all the equipment. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. I mean, really large-scale fabrication tools and equipment and large tables and, you know, just the tools of the trade that go with that industry. It's everything from, oh, my gosh, I think there was a sign for the freeway. <laughs> that I saw. Uh, yeah, street yeah. signs. There, there are street signs, a lot of recognizable big companies here in the islands. And even there are a lot of vintage kind of advertising memorabilia as well. And I guess it's a sign of the times. You know, you folks are handling business for folks like the Honolulu Sign Company, you know, whether they're they're going under or they're downsizing. You know, you folks were doing something with Floridec, a lot of the shelving for that crafts company. Exactly. And there's going to be another another auction for Floridec at a later time, I, I think in a, a few weeks from now, where they actually do get rid of some of the merchandise and other retail space. You folks were in uh, Love's Bakery earlier today, you know, taking stock of what they've got there and, and what will have to be auctioned off. Yes, what's in the works is a two-phase auction. So the first one would be more like, you know, the, the movable stuff, you know, the delivery trucks and forklifts, tools, anything that kind of rolls, you know, the, those really rolling um, baking racks and baking pans, that kind of thing. And then the phase two auction will be more for the, the larger machinery and kind of the, the plant equipment. And you folks have got the Willows. Yes, another iconic restaurant. I guess it's been around since 1947. 
and it was recently purchased by Grace Bible Church, Honolulu. I'm not sure when it was, but just recently. So its hope is to revive the space for community purposes. And I think there are certain areas within the property that they're looking for uh, restaurateurs to come in and operate as well. What's been the general feeling just coming out of this pandemic? I think for the most part, people are trying to hold, hang on. You know, there are, uh, I've heard numerous restaurants have closed in the calendar year. But at the same time, we've only done maybe a handful, maybe three or four in 2020. So it's really surprising that we haven't seen more restaurant auctions. Um, in fact, we've done more restaurants in previous years prior to the pandemic, so it's, it's kind of ironic, but certain industries, of course, uh, have suffered more than others, um, one being the, the rental um, equipment industry. Uh, when you think about it, you know, we don't have concerts. We haven't had anything like that for a while, no graduation parties, no public events. So I think we, we saw, um, you know, in 2020, uh, several companies, kind of the large companies, involved with uh, rentals that, that went under. And, you know, uh, uh, obviously the, the folks that bid at these auctions, you know, maybe some are, are trying to get a bit of history, uh, you know, a bit of nostalgia, and, and some maybe want to take advantage of getting the equipment that they might need for their business. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even in the, res- the, the few restaurant auctions we've conducted recently, um, people are optimistic they are purchasing equipment with the idea of either expanding or reopening once things settle down and get back to normal and so are are people able to actually view the merchandise or is it all virtual it's been virtual for some time um prior to the pandemic our model was to allow everyone to come in and look at the inventory because our platform it's usually one auction usually goes for about a week week and a half so there's a lot of opportunity to submit your bid Um, but traditionally we've allowed people to come in at some point and um, lately we haven't because of the pandemic and we hope to return to that model shortly and as things kind of you know slowly get back to normal and you folks have handled uh, the sale of let's say furniture and things from hotels that maybe have renovated. I think you did something with the Turtle Bay Resort recently, and then you've got something up on the uh, Four Seasons Lanai. Yes, we did. We conducted one for the Turtle Bay Resort about four months ago, and now our current um, inventory, or we have a current auction that's happening now, um, and it's for the Four Seasons Lanai. Um, it's just a collection of furniture that they've shipped over to us um, via you know, 40-foot containers. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's a, a collection of hotel, room, lobby, wood bar furniture, and even, you know, super-sized pieces from their, their retail space. And this is actually a fun one because it's not, a, it's not pandemic-related, and... There are also some fun pieces like billiard tables. There are four shuffleboard tables in there as well. Really well crafted from Martin MacArthur. Yes, I saw it. Beautiful pool table. Oh my gosh. Beautifully carved and produced here locally by Martin and MacArthur. This is the first phase, so we anticipate another several containers coming from the Four Seasons Lanai in upcoming weeks. We have been in business for years and we've done everything from schools to estates for prominent individuals here throughout the island. No, no shortage of offices, moving, relocating, and of course some really big ones like the Love's Bakery. We've done farm auctions. We've done construction equipment, really large companies upgrading their equipment because when you're a rental operation, you have to keep everything well-maintained and keep bringing in newer stuff. It's very heartbreaking, especially when something, you know, company, restaurant has been around for a long time. Such was the case with the Alan Wong restaurant because it's something people really connected with, very 
iconic name. At the same time, you know, there there is that glimmer of hope where, you know, they, they maybe at some point can reopen at, at another time. I mean, at least it, it is being, you know, these things are being reused, repurposed, and it's going to people who can hopefully use it again in the same industry. I happened to be at Pearl Ridge Sears to say goodbye to that store there, and one uh-huh. gentleman I talked to said, oh, it's so hard because he says you lose a store and it's like losing someone in your family. Yeah, I, I do hear that a lot. And some of these businesses have been around for decades. You know, for this Honolulu Sign Company, I know they've been in existence for 80 years. That was Oahu Auctions owner Alicia Brandt. And we should mention that Honolulu Sign Company auction, I believe, ends tomorrow. For links, uh, for information, uh, head to our website. This is a conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. On this week's Mono Minute, we learn about the yellow-fronted canary. Here's University of Hawaii's Hilo professor, Patrick Hart. Yellow-fronted canaries are native to sub-Saharan Africa and were intentionally introduced in the mid-1960s, both on Oahu, near Coco Crater, and Hawaii Island, near Kona. It's since become incredibly common on both those islands, are found on the other main islands as well. If you live near a town or city and see a small bird that's mostly yellow with grayish wings and head but with a bright yellow stripe above its eye and in particular is spending a lot of time singing, it's most likely a yellow-fronted canary. The well-known common canary is a different species and hasn't become established here, except on Midway Atoll. Yellow-fronted canaries mainly feed on grass seeds, flower buds, and small insects. They often forage in mixed species flocks with other small, introduced seed-eating birds, such as the saffron finch. Yellow-fronted canaries are also one of the many non-native bird species that inhabit the lowlands that are resistant to mosquito-transmitted diseases like avian malaria that are preventing our native bird species from living in these areas. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Biology Department. And this week's Mono Minute was made with recordings from the McCulley Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. From the mountains to the sea, Hawaii's birds can be heard in their native habitat. Take a moment to listen. Subscribe to Mono Minute, HPR's latest podcast, now available through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your RSS feed. Support for Manu Minute comes from Dr. Mike and Sharon Scott for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about how to help protect rare and endangered birds and plants at friendsofhakalauforest.org. Earlier in the show, we told you about the endemic Hawaiian prickly poppy, also called as the beach poppy. It can be found on the uh, in the wild on leeward sides of the island. One of its most recognizable traits is a large amount of prickles that cover the whole plant, from stems, leaves, to the flower buds, even the seed pods. When in bloom, the plant is topped off with delicate white six-petaled flowers. The plant has a rosette form and its leaves grow outwards, radiating from a central stem. It's the only poppy native to Hawaii and is a close relative to the Mexican poppy. However, unlike opium poppies, this plant doesn't produce morphine or codeine. Rather, it produces toxic alkaloids that irritate the stomach and bowels. The plant's very bitter taste has proven to be a deterrent to cattle and other livestock. Despite its toxic nature, early Hawaiians were known to use puakala for medicinal purposes. The sap and seeds' narcotic qualities were used to treat toothache pain, ulcers, and nerve pain. The yellow sap was used to treat warts. 
It is one of the few plants that can grow in very dry, windy locations. It's drought tolerant, making it suitable for xeriscape gardens. Just remember to wear gloves when you handle the prickly puakala. And we have a winner today, Lawrence Rose from South Kona. He says he sees the puakala growing on his property. How cool is that? That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, talk to uh, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Honolulu Habitat for Humanities Restore, a home improvement store and donation center, open Tuesday through Saturday from 9.30 to 4. HonoluluHabitat.org. Ever wonder what it takes to run a radio station in a pandemic? We pull back the curtain in HPR's 2020 annual report. We recap the accomplishments of our local news team and highlight how we've continued to celebrate live music this year, plus some silver linings for good measure. Those on our email list will automatically receive the report. If you're not yet subscribed, just send a note to members at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Arts exhibition O Kalani, featuring works by contemporary Native Hawaiian artists Sean K. L. Brown and Imai Kalani Kalahele, extended through April 11th. HonoluluMuseum.org. You know, a few weeks ago, we chatted with Sonia Lowe, the CEO of Sensei Ag, a new lanai company focused on using high-tech to improve farming. It's backed by billionaire Larry Ellison. But we were struck by Sonia Lowe's resume. You know, her parents were diplomats. She was raised living around the world and speaks seven languages. In addition to her uh, Harvard business background and political science background, she studied at the London Culinary School as a pastry chef and manages to raise two young children while commuting to Lanai from the Bay Area. And did we mention she's also a third-degree black belt in Taekwondo? Lo says when it comes to food, she's driven by taste, texture, and aroma, thanks to her culinary background. Well, if you ever met me in person, you would realize that I really do like my food. I'm five foot ten which makes me an extraordinarily large South Korean woman, and I am not a size zero. Okay. <laughs> um, so when I had the opportunity many years ago now, I had successfully sold a company, and I thought, wow, you know, I really am so exhausted by this process that I think I'm going to go and do something completely non-business oriented. So I went to culinary school, and I worked as a chef in London for two years, and I absolutely loved it. Oh, my gosh. Um, it was the hardest thing I've ever done because you're on your feet from, I don't know, 5 o'clock in the morning until 11 p.m. at night, but I loved it. And it gave me such a respect. You know, London has these huge fruits and vegetable markets and meat markets and fish markets. And in the morning, I would set out on my Vespa and go and buy the ingredients for the day's worth of cooking. And I just absolutely love that. And so that experience, though, comes full circle. I mean, you know, you prepare <laughs> the food, right? You enjoy the food, and now you're working in this business. I know. So it all, it's I all know. come together. And I really do approach everything that we do. Of course, you know, I have long experience in technology, but I love approaching things from the culinary perspective as well, which is it may be the most nutritious vegetable in the world, but if it doesn't taste very good, then, you know, we're never going to sell it. So, you know, I always am focused on taste, texture, aroma as well in sort of a more classic chef-y way. So do you have a backyard garden? I am a black thumb. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> okay. I am somebody that literally I'm not allowed near the house plants. Ah, okay. <laughs> so, you know, you don't want me growing the plants. You want me preparing the plants after they're harvested. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. And then where in your background does this come from? I mean, I don't know. Where did you grow up? I grew up all over the world. My parents were diplomats. And my mother is a phenomenal cook. And, you know, I remember her feeding Korean food, especially the sort of great population divider, kimchi, to people all over the world. And people think, oh, no, no, Korean food, uh, kimchi, I can't eat that. You know, it's too garlicky, too spicy, too this. And then they would taste hers, and they would go, wow, this is amazing. You know, I never knew Korean food could taste like this. 
And so I grew up with this tradition of my mother being the cultural ambassador for Korean food around the world. And so uh, where were your parents stationed? Oh, gosh, where weren't they stationed? So my dad's first posting was in the Middle East, and we lived in Tehran, of all places. And he covered most of the Middle East, and then we moved to Brazil, where he covered the kind of upper half of Latin America, up through the Caribbean And then we moved to Australia, where he covered that part of the South Pacific, then back to Korea, then back to Argentina, where he covered the lower half of Latin America. And then I came to the U.S. to go to boarding school. Wow. You're you're quite a woman of the world, though. That's really fascinating. You know, you can pretty much take me anywhere. I can figure out how to order food, find a bathroom, and get us a hotel. Okay. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I I see you speak seven languages. Uh, That's a very important skill to have. It's an interesting life. You know, it's a... I think the children of diplomats either end up incredibly resilient Mm -hmm. and kind of able to do a lot of different things, or it breaks them, you know, because you have to move every two or three years to a different country, different culture, different language. You see this a lot with military families, right, and military kids who they're accustomed to living in Wiesbaden, Germany, or Mm -hmm. they go to South Korea, or they end up in six different states in the United States. And again, you end up with the families that do super well, and the kids end up being resourceful and capable and can kind of, you can throw them into any situation and they'll do okay. And then you end up with the ones who are like, no, no. I am never traveling again, and, you know, I hated it. As, uh, I'm going to put roots down. Childhood. <laughs> yeah. So now how old are your kids? So they're really little. Um, I have an almost five-year-old uh-huh. and a two-year-old. Okay. It's so fun because, you know, you run into these powerful people in the market, and then, you know, they're the CEOs, and then they have their little kid with them, and they're just, like, totally powerless. Yeah, <laughs> kids exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my... Uh, my kids Zoom bomb every day because I don't have a door on my home office. I'm actually like tucked away into a mezzanine of our house, kind of like a balcony area. So, you know, I have no control over when they decide to come in and Zoom bomb. Ah, uh, yes, but that's the best job you'll ever have. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. So you live in the Bay Area then. You don't live on Lanai. It's true. I do live in the Bay Area, and I travel to Lanai as frequently as I can. Okay. Um, but I'm going to have to start traveling more frequently because of all the new build-out that we're doing there. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you chatting with us. Like I said, there's so many things I wanted to talk about. Thank you. thank you. And again, you should come out and see the farm and see how we're growing. That was Sonia Lowe, CEO of Sensei Ag, located on the island of Lanai. Look for links on our website. We have to go now, but tomorrow we plan to talk opportunities for backyard gardeners and farmers. It's a wide net. Microloans and the Agricultural Development Corporation. Got an ag story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.